Um, and I was on the property ladder until I started this, started the business. Um, and I just don't think, I just, I think I'm old enough to realize that none of those things bring me any happiness. And it might bring other people happiness, but it just doesn't do anything for me. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello and welcome back to the 16th episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast, where we delve into issues and views about wealth in society. Today, Terry and I are going to interview Gary Ray. I've known Gary since our student days at the Institute of Buddhist Studies. He's also my favorite ever dungeon master. Gary's a small business owner. He runs a retail game store, Black Diamond Games, in Concord, California. You've got to think board games, card games, and role-playing games, not video games. And he's an author. He wrote Friendly Local Game Store, A Five-Year Path to a Middle-Class Income. We wanted to bring Gary onto the podcast because he has a it's kind of a special, interesting take on success and responsibility. Please enjoy the conversation with Gary Ray. Gary, I just want to say thanks for coming on. Thanks, thanks been, for having uh, me. Uh, great, great. It's been, uh, I've been so impressed with you as a person for about 20 years and with what you've built. Um, and I'm glad you're willing to kind of come on and share it and talk, talk about it with us. Um, so just to get us started, tell us a little bit about your path and tell us a little bit about uh, how you got here and what you're up to. Um, well... Right now, I've had I have a hobby game store of all things, uh, so I sell sell things like board games and Dungeons and Dragons, and I've been doing that for seventeen years now. Uh, I've written a book on it on on how you can do it too, <laughs> and uh, the the subtitle of the book is uh, how to how to obtain a middle class income. So we're talking not a lot of money here. This is not a path to great financial success, but it's it's something I'm interested in. A lot of people are interested in so. Uh, this is kind of how to do it so you can actually survive and, and not be poor. Uh, before that, I was in IT for 10 years. Okay, that's uh, quite the transition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I didn't like being in IT. I basically didn't like working for other people, it turns out. Um, when I think about it, I, if I were to do it over again, I would probably become an IT consultant uh, now that I know kind of what my issues were and where my strengths lie. Uh, and, and I think you go ahead. I was gonna say I think I think we'll get into some of some of that because um, I know that Terry. I don't know if you've read a lot of the blog posts or the book, but I, I've been following Gary and his blog for a long time, and a lot of what you talk about is autonomy. So that that we're gonna talk about that in a second. But before we get into that, let's talk. Let's just start with terms, because one of the things we talk about here is we talk about defining what success means. We talk about it in terms of true wealth. And you, you come in to this conversation saying, oh, it's not a lot of money. It's not. But I have to say, you are successful and, and I see your life and your freedom that you've created for, for you and your family as impressive and something that, that many people with more resources don't have. Um, so just can you define for us what in, what in your terms is true wealth? Um, it, it's, it's a time and money issue. So I want to have... I want to be able to do whatever I want with my time, and money is the path to to that that uh, that goal. 
Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of money. It just takes enough money. Uh, and of course, that's the big issue is how much do you need? Uh, there's always something else you could do. Uh, there's, a, there's a really good Harvard Business Review study where they talk about uh, small businesses and what the next, you know, the next step, because there's always a next step. And basically, you have next steps until you fail or you decide you're done. Uh, so it's really about when you're going to decide you've had enough uh, and you've got enough to, to, to be what you consider to be successful, right? Mm -hmm. Well, like maybe, uh, you know, we can just poke at that a little bit. How do you, if there is sort of like, you know, this tension between time and money, uh, between stress you're willing to take on, obligations you're willing to take on as a small business person, how were you able to kind of find the sweet spot there where you can, um, how can I say, like, um, you know, balance your comfort and the lifestyle you want with the amount of money you make? Right. It was, it was all about... Um... It was kind of some dead end paths. I was, it was all about developing processes and procedures. So I was not necessary for the business. So I was dispensable. I didn't want to be indispensable. Uh, and so I built these processes and procedures with this idea of once I have these in place, I, I'm not, first of all, not needed, which means it's going to be a better business anyway. And it could be, it'll be more valuable. It also means I can do the next thing. Uh, which could be a second business, a second location or whatever. And uh, it took me, I built these processes and procedures. I have the staff in place and it took me a long time to realize that like it, I, I felt chained to the counter, chained to the business. And uh, it took someone else to tell me to go home. <laughs> Just, you don't need to be here. Cause I got burned out and said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I can't be front and center. And my manager at the time said, well, then don't. Why are you, why, why do you feel you're required to do this? <laughs> so I stepped back and did all the projects that I thought I needed to do that had been piling up in my inbox. And I figured that would be my life would just be doing all these projects. But I finished them in about three months, everything that I had. So I kind of worked myself out of a job. Um, and then I started to try, I tried to find added value for me in the business, but really I was kind of ready for the next thing, but I didn't have a next thing yet. I, I do notice that you have, your next thing has been, and this, this I think goes to that definition of true wealth. Um, I think that your next thing was always uh, spending time with your son and you've done some amazing things um, that I honestly envy uh, uh, with, with your son and with, with your family. And so can you just kind of just, just a brief, this is wealth to me because this was what I was able to do with my time. Right. Um, and so, you know, you only have so many, so much time with your children, you know, you, you, they, they grow up, they go away. So every summer with him was, you know, an opportunity that I didn't want to miss. And I discovered the travel with him was a great way to connect. And it was also educational for him. And it, because of the way we traveled, it, it, uh, there was adversity. <laughs> so it taught, how to overcome adversity and how to be a resilient, resilient person. So I just discovered that whenever I could travel with him and kind of adventure travel, uh, it was just a great enriching experience for both of us. Uh, and then that just kind of grew bigger and bigger over time. So I, I think the last big one we went on was almost three months in Central America and Mexico. And, and that ended with what? That, that that was fine. That one didn't end badly. 
<laughs> oh, is the one out? Okay, okay. But the, the the Jeep's right now in the shop for being rolled uh, from like the high center of gravity, right? Come on. Uh, this year we went on a trip and, and uh, you know, it's COVID, so it's a bit difficult. So the theme of the trip was we were going to go to indigenous uh, settlements throughout the Southwest. And we just, I just linked them together. And we went on some really, some really amazing places all the way through Arizona to Colorado to New Mexico. Just had an amazing time. And there was mistakes were made. <laughs> and on our kind of our last trip, we we're going to go see some petroglyphs in Valley of Fire State Park in Nevada. And uh, I, I tipped a Jeep over on its side and uh, we had to be towed out of there. That was that was not my best day. But but adversity, boy, you can learn adversity. And he's very he's very quiet about it for a long time. And then I, I I wondered if he had some like PTSD or something. And then no, it turns out he shows a picture of him standing in front of the flipped over Jeep to all of his friends. Right, he's got it ready to show them. You know, anyone he meets, he's very proud of this totally. moment. And I'm just embarrassed, and you know, feel like I put my kid's life in danger. <laughs> No, I think it, I think it's a I think it's a great story, and I think he can tell the story, and it is him living through adversity, and it's it is you know it speaks to uh, your ability to not focus on more and think about that enough and put those things in place to enable that time spend is incredible, and he'll never forget that, uh, and neither will you. I mean, it's it's amazing, and I'm I'm very impressed with it all the time. Is is there any like single thing that you did that enabled this like if, if you wanted to say to somebody else hey you know there's systems and processes there's faith in your people there's hiring the right people what is the thing that enabled you to create time um geez so the processes and procedures is is the key to all of that and and hiring and and uh developing good staff I mean, I rely on my manager and my staff tremendously for for day to day stuff. I still work in the business remote, remotely, uh, so I, I'm not I'm not gone. In fact, I feel more attached now that I'm not there in a strange way. Um, but I would say that's the big thing: is developing those processes and procedures and planning to 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 do the next thing. And you don't have to know what the next thing is. But I did I do warn people that. Once you do this, you will work yourself out of a job and you better have some place to go. <laughs> or you might be miserable because you have no work, uh, which I've, I've been, I was that way for a number of years. Um, and COVID kind of showed me the way. I don't think I would have really stepped away 100% uh, until COVID happened. Because I stepped in and did the entire business for a number of months. And then I handed off the whole business to other people after that. So I kind of had to re-engage, realize that I could at any time re-engage based on what I do. And then I completely disengaged because I had the confidence that I could always step back in and, uh, and take over again. So, and, and, I, and I had to gradually learn how to disengage and how to, how to take vacations, for example, right? I mean, you, my first year of business, I, I had three days off of the whole year. I worked about 65, 70 hours a week, every week. And it wasn't until the third year I even had weekends off. And then when I would take a vacation, everything would fall apart. So this is like what small business owners experience. And a lot of them might say, well, I'm never doing that again. Or someone steals from them and they say, well, I'm never gonna 
rely on other people again, which is a comp very common thing. Um, so you have to have faith in people. You have to accept that things are going to happen. Uh, you have to have trial and error where you come back and then you fix the procedures that went wrong. And then I just extended that longer and longer to two weeks, to a month, to six weeks, to three months. <laughs> and the next stage is six months. Is I'm going to be my plan is in the future is to be gone for six months at a time, uh, out of the country. So part of that is like having enough money in the bank account for a for a plane ticket back <laughs> in a hurry. <laughs> this uh, it sounds a little bit like uh, almost like Tim Ferriss here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to delegate your way out of a job. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's I, pretty much it, yeah. Um, I wonder if I can like sort of ask you, you know, people who struggle with this kind of balance, um, what do you think the biggest obstacles people face when it comes to building true wealth and fulfillment? What are the, where are the places where people trip themselves up, in your opinion? Well, I can't have, I can't have everything, right? So there are areas in my life that are not developed. Like I have friends that are wealthy and they can do A, B, and C, and maybe I'll do C with them, right? I can only afford C. <laughs> so I'm saving up for my big trip and they're like, hey, let's go to Europe for, for a month, you know, this summer. I'm like, you're confused. I'm saving up for the big trip. Uh, so I can only afford my one, my one thing. It also means my my other things like retirement savings are not really where they should be. That would be nice. Um, I think anytime you're engaged in an adventure travel, for example, there's no good time to go uh, because you're either gonna be too old to go or you're not gonna have the money. So at a certain point, you just have to say, we're just gonna spend the money or we're gonna go do this uh, and everything else can wait. And you, know, you have a kid, you have only so many of those years where you do this in theory. Although as I do have plans for when he's out, out of school and I go off on my own adventures. So um, I don't know if that, does that answer your question? That's a lot of rambling. <laughs> um, well, like, I wonder if you could just sort of be more specific. I mean, surely, you know, you, you see um, other people living either sort of in a fulfilled way with their level of wealth and you see other people who have somehow made the wrong trade-offs so either that is their you know income is too low so that they constantly feel pinched by the fact that they're restrained by that or you see like you say wealthy people who are somehow chained to the office and so it seems that like and, and i think this is why jonathan invited you on the show is that you seem to have struck a very good balance with um your lifestyle versus money trade-off and so if you were to observe or make an observation about where other people make mistakes and how they, they, they handle their setup, like where do you, what's the, the, the problem? Is the problem a practical problem? Is the problem like a mental problem where people somehow don't frame things the right way and so they end up making the wrong trade-offs? Like what's your, what do you think of that? Um, I think people are afraid to disengage. Um, I know the, my, I'm, I'm in my fifties. My, I have friends at this point who, if you've, if you've played by the rules, you've developed quite a bit of wealth. I have friends who could retire right now uh, and they're working jobs they hate. And this is very strange to me because my thinking as a business owner is how much money do I need to not do this anymore? Uh, how much, wh where do I have to be to, to disengage? And, and even with a little bit of danger is okay, right? And I talk to my, my, my friends who have money and they have this built up lifestyle that they've built up because they're generally unhappy in their jobs. And 
they're assuming that they're going to take this lifestyle with them into retirement or whatever it is that, that really gets them excited after working. Um, I think they're, and I think they overestimate the amount of money they need, but then again, Jonathan would probably tell me that, that I underestimate the amount of money I need. So, um, so I, I've kind of feel bad for the ones that are never really going to have their adventures because they're too afraid to disengage. Uh, I, I also never, started a business to become wealthy or to even have, um, I never planned to actually have this kind of freedom. Uh, I, I think success just kind of caught up with me in a way. I'm not, I mean, I'm not, and I'm not amazingly successful, but I'm successful enough to, to do what I want, which is, which is perfect for me. Um, but that was never a goal to, if I could just work another so many years, uh, I could, go travel for six months out of the year because honestly if that had if i had thought like that i would have done it a lot sooner because <laughs> uh, i spent the first it took me nine years to just finally step away from the counter alone and i could have done it a lot earlier than that so th this actually gets to um this question of autonomy um so you you mentioned this is an i think an old blog post of yours uh that big companies you know, are monolithic and slow-moving and and uh, uh, dull-sensed businesses, and then small companies are nimble and quick and capable of catastrophic error. Um, but neither of those worked out for you because you didn't have the autonomy. So I remember, you know, back in the day when you started Black Diamond Games, and I remember the analysis you went through to do it. And you just said you you didn't plan on having this kind of freedom. You just wanted to do something that was more towards your heart. So how did you go from, I want to do something I love to, wow, I can have freedom with this. And that's really what I want. When, when was that realization? You said it took nine years, but how did that develop? Um, it, it, I needed permission to, to disengage. And I didn't feel like I had, I, I, I mean, even when, I, even when you start a small business, you, it feels like you're, it's a transgression. Feel like you're doing something wrong right because you don't have a boss you don't have you don't know what to do you know you it's like every single day what do i do there's no one to tell you what to do you know your job is to make money how do you make money no one knows you know that's for you to figure out so that's that's kind of how it started and just kind of through that process um I, you have to kind of set up your own personal goals your your way of doing things um, and you start to have a, a pattern, a rhythm, you meet people like my customer, I love my customers. So disengaging from my customers was, was difficult. Um, but after nine years, I was getting a little bit snappy <laughs> with some people. So what I was able to do from between like year nine and year 16 was work in the office and come out and talk to the people I wanted to talk to and not talk about, not talk to the people I didn't want to talk to. Uh, I also learned an awful lot about what happens when I'm not there from just eavesdropping in the office. Um, I think one of the big, it's kind of a tangent, but one of the big things I learned about was the prevalence of sexual harassment, how, how, how tremendous that was and the crazy things people would say when they thought they were alone with a, with a female uh, service worker. <laughs> so um, you're talking about customers, customers, customers huh. can be kind of creepy and, and I, and I have my female staff, they tell me that things that customers would do. And I'm like, oh, oh okay. But it just seems so, I didn't, I didn't really believe it, that it could be, that people could be like that. So sitting in the back, let me hear a lot of uh, nonsense. Let, let us change the business for the better. 
to be more um, sensitive to these issues uh, with the staff, among other things. And I do know, I do know this is this is just um, uh, just from watching you work with things. You you have always been focused on developing the people that work there, and you've always been protective of them. Um, saying things like, we, you know, we don't need this person's business. I don't care how much they spend here. If they're going to misbehave, they're not allowed to come back. Um, and that's, that's been impressive. Uh, so I know that you've stood up for people. That's, that's, I mean, I think one of the things you learn is that staff come first. Yep. They're, they're, they're absolutely the first, the first uh, priority. Um, I think it's a Richard Branson thing too, that he talks about. But um, so once the staff come first, then you know, you're obviously developing staff and you expect your staff to behave properly and you would never allow your staff to behave badly towards customers. And then, and then you can worry about the customers after you're, I mean, once, once, you've, once you've handled your staff, the, the staff will serve the customers well, I think. Um, so yeah, so is that it? <laughs> no, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I wonder if, like, just to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of this a little bit more, maybe you can tell us about, like, how you you ended up planning the business, because I think, um, you know, the importance of having a good business plan um, and then being able to sort of look into the future and see how that, you can see how it's going to be successful or how it's going to meet the goals that you set. Um, could you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and there's and there's two parts of that. The first part is um, I I have a I wrote a book on how to do that on how to start this kind of business and like all the nuts and bolts and stuff, how to write the plan and all that. That's called friendly, friendly local game store. Do my little plug there. And the reason I wrote the book was there was nothing like that when I started, and I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I started with an idea, and um, Jonathan actually was very instrumental in insisting that I write a business plan, which I had never, never done. Um, and in the business plan are all the financials that are now just commonplace that I can, you know, I, I look at them daily where before they were, you know, trying to figure out a income statement and a balance sheet was, was, was impossible. I really didn't understand anything that was going on with those, with those types of documents. So I wrote the business plan and um, it really was, it really did feel like mimicking other business plans uh, with a few personal details. Um, and I did the research, the research was critical to the success of the business. And um, I, I, some things I nailed really well, like I, for, for some odd reason, I nailed my sales forecasts, which are completely something you shouldn't be able to nail because it's completely made up. And, but I got my expenses off by like 50%. So I really was not prepared at all for, for starting and I, and I paid for it. I, I tell people you either, you either come with experience and, and you, get, you pay for it with that experience or you come with extra capital that you're gonna, you're gonna burn to get that experience, uh, one or the other. And I, and I had the capital at the time. So it took me a while to, 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 to figure it out, uh, to figure out the model. And you, but you, you're, but you, it's important to have a model. I think if you were giving advice to, um, let's say other like small business owners who are getting ready to start, like I, I, you, you feel like it's very important to have that kind of model and like a, a, a blueprint for what you think is going to happen. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing is it's going to be scary and, and you're going to have a lot of self doubt. And if you have a plan 
and you know it's a good plan and you've shown it to people and who know what they're doing and they think it's a good plan, you can have some faith in the plan if the plan is right. And I mean, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy, but the business plan should, should be some sort of a guide, right? It should be, it should help you along. Uh, and that's what I did. I had faith in the plan. So I kept saying, just have, have faith in the plan. <laughs> so um, I, I want to I shift back to like culture and society here for a second. Uh, uh, our ambition and the quest for wealth inherently selfish. You know, you know can, can we have achievement or can achievement be practiced as both personal and social? Can, we, can, can achievement and building wealth be a societal positive? Oh, wow. That's a big one, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you've, you've, having discussions with you about this in, the, in, in past years has been very helpful. I, and, and I have to have, I have, a little, I have a little bit of faith in the system as bring, uh, uh, in its ability to bring people out of poverty and suffering, right? It's, we have less, of, less poverty and suffering and more than we've had in the past. I wanna think that that's related to, the, to bringing, bringing people up out of poverty. Um, so that's at the kind of the big, you know, 30,000 foot level, right? Um, personally, I always have my doubts because I have, I have, I have a Buddhist background and, uh, I, I, I kind of, I, I'm always watching for distraction, right? And, and a lot of my, a lot of my spending uh, verges on, on the, on distraction. I don't want to, and I, I try to avoid that as much as possible, but eh, there's a lot of distraction going on from, from what's, re, what's really happening. And I have a lot of, I have a lot of um, um, appreciation uh, for people who, who are actually using wealth to make the world better. I'm, I'm just, trying to have a good time with my boy. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think, I, think that, I think that might be like a bit simplistic in the sense that like, it sounds like you run a business that puts employees first and that, um, you know, provides a service for, that brings people together in, in gaming, right? So somehow by creating the kind of business that you wanna have that embodies your values, like presumably that has a kind of an impact on, on the world. I mean, I, I, it sounds like you, you know, you're, be, you're trying to be a bit understated, but like ultimately that seems like a pretty big contribution. I, I actually forget about that. I, for, I forget, I f I, I, I try because I try not to take I try not to let my ego get inflated and I try not and I can't measure these things right these things are hard to measure and I'm all about how do I measure this business to make it to improve it and make it better but I mean I've had this I've had this discussion with like Buddhist teachers about well you know you're bringing people joy in a, in a difficult world so that should that should count for something I'm like oh okay all right but still you know it's, I don't feel like I'm you know I'm not saving lives at the hospital. <laughs> Uh, and yes, and, and I'm providing jobs and the whole, you know, collecting taxes and the whole thing, making, making the community a better place. But I just, it's hard for me being more numbers driven to kind of wrap my head around that. And I'm, and I know it's, I know it's true. I know it's there. And, it, and it's, you multiply that by thousands and thousands of businesses, not all of which operate as nicely and kindly in their universe as you do, but there's a lot of things created by that. And I, th I think it's important to keep that in mind. And occasionally the customers will, there'll be an outpouring of support like during COVID and I will be like legitimately surprised, <laughs> right? Like I'm feeling, I feel so undeserving 
of that because I'm doing this thing and I get my rewards and I get to go do my stuff and okay, I'm helping people, but I don't think, I don't think too much about that. I just think about how to make everything better. Uh, so when there's, when they do kind of come out and, and uh, show me, show me they support us by, you know, usually with their wallets, but even just, you know, thanking us, I'm a little, I'm, I'm surprised every time, every time it happens. I love the humility, man. I love it. I, I don't know if that's what it is. It's something. It's something. So, so I, I still want to pick at this a little bit though. And there's, there's these, there's these, you know, external markers of success. There's wealth, there's status, there's, you know, uh, you just go on social media, you see photos of all of it all the time. Right. Um, how do you reconcile that with, and I, and I know you have a sort of a deep spiritual practice. How do you recognize, how do you reconcile the, the two, the, the, the external markers with the internal well-being and spiritual practice that I know you pursue? Um, I mean, I've, I've done all this through trial and error. So I've had, uh, I've had the fancy cars and I've done the big trips, you know, to Europe and stuff like that. And I've, I mean, I've, I've tried, I've tried all of the, the markers of success, as you would say. Um, and I was on the property ladder until I started this, started the business. Um, and I just don't think, I just, I think I'm old enough to realize that none of those things bring me any happiness and, and it might bring other people happiness, but it just doesn't do anything for me. Like my parents think I should sell my house right now and go buy a bigger house. I'm just thinking that means I just have to work longer. I just means I'm going to buy a larger mortgage. I don't really want, oh, I don't want any mortgage. <laughs> I don't want that at all. Uh, so I'm just looking at what, like right now, what do I have to do to get to where I want to go? And everything else is kind of extra. And then I'm not trying to impress anyone. I already live in a, my, my, my community that I live in is through the store is not, they're not a very wealthy group of people. So there's nobody really to impress. In fact, when you're when you're in a when you run a store and you have any sort of ostentatious wealth, it's held against you. Yeah. you now you show up in a new car, people start to wonder why they're shopping with you. Why am I giving this guy money when he's buying new cars? He must, he must be making too much. It's that's it's an interesting commentary on local ownership because um, if you you know if you own shares in say Amazon um, and you know you have multi billions because of how much of Amazon you own, we make fun of him from afar, but he doesn't affect his customer base. His customer base ignores that and orders. Whereas right. if you're the local guy and you have a local shop, whether you're a, I have a, I have a buddy of mine who's a real estate agent and he drives, you know, um, a very, very, very modest Toyota. He doesn't, even, not a, not a high end Toyota. And he does that because he doesn't want his clients to see that he has wealth, which is interesting. It's almost, That's, but Jonathan, I was just going to make the comment. Like, so I'm, I'm also in real estate and I was just going to say that, um, and I don't know if it's, you know, maybe like Montreal is like hardly a big city, but like here, uh, you real estate agents often will have a really nice car because people judge the level of success of the agent by how nice their car is. And so like they can live in a dump, nobody sees a dump, but like when you show up to a visit or you show up to a client's house, you want them to get the, the impression that you're successful. And yep. so like, I think, um, you know, if, if you look at the contrast there, I think maybe, I'm not sure if your industry is the same, Jonathan, I would assume that it is, but um, definitely in real estate, like conspicuous signs of wealth, be it, you know, your watch, your car, how you dress, um, the restaurants you can go to and like wave your card around. Like there's definitely a status hierarchy there that people use to signal how well they're doing. 
I, I think the signal, it's, it's a very interesting conversation because I think the signals in Montreal are different than the signals in Berkeley, California. I think the Berkeley, California, you drive an electric vehicle, you, you know, and so it's, you know, you don't, you don't have ostentatious show, showing of wealth. Uh, and it is, you know, it, it isn't something that is accepted here. If you go to Texas, more accepted, bigger vehicles, right? It's, so it's, it's just, it's a different culture and a different set of values, I think, around what is important. And I, I think the reason I like having Gary on is because is because he has built a balance between um, uh, those conspicuous showings of wealth and happiness. Like those things are unnecessary to create happiness unless they're your. And and we've had Sonia Lubomirsky on, and she said if you seek out wealth and that's your target, you can't be happy because there's always going to be more wealth. You can't reach it. And the, the reality is, if you can find what makes you happy and you can reach that, that's what you should strive for. And I think Gary's done that. I think that's a rare thing. And in small business, it's one of those things where it takes a long time to have any sort of profit at all. And you get so fixated on profit, you don't even know what profit looks like. You don't understand like, how, after a certain point, you've kind of covered your nut and everything else is just pure kind of profit after cost of goods. I mean, there's things like it took me a long time to like, where did, how does this work? How does this money, this extra money come? How does this, how does this even function? Because it just took so long. So I know one of the things that I did is I, once I had money, I spent a lot of money really fast my first couple of years. And then I kind of settled down. I'm like, okay, fine. This might be a thing that continues. Let's just cool it and, and have some goals. Um, but I remember I bought a, I, I remember having tremendous guilt from buying a new Volkswagen, right? Like I wrote a whole thing about like, oh my God, I mean, what are, what are they going to say now about me? <laughs> I show up in this new Volkswagen. <laughs> wow, that's funny. <laughs> I've had fancy cars in the past, but this was different. This is a different. It's a Volkswagen, you know, like watch out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if we can sort of like, like, uh, you know, step back into the macro for a minute, if you were king for a day, what rule would you change? And who do you think would be the biggest beneficiary? And who would bear the greatest cost of that rule change? That's a really tough one. I mean, the, the thing that the thing that vexes me is, is globalization and the and labor. And, and I, and if I was king for a day, I, I mean, I understand where we're at, where we, where we're kind of spreading the wealth through globalization. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping for a quicker equalization is what I'm, what I'm hoping for. So if I could wave a magic wand, I would, I would want this, I would want uh, jobs and, and opportunity all throughout the world, all through Africa. Let's just get all, let's get Africa settled. And I, I'm hoping to get to a point where um, it makes more sense to, to, to make things in this country and I wanna see wages stabilized. Because right now wages are where, where my business has the hardest time and I be, I've become the enemy. My, my particular type of business has gone from uh, a great place for uh, college kids to work part-time to an expectation that a family of four is going to, is going to make a living um, selling magic cards, magic the gathering cards. Um, and I, and I see where I see all of the threads of this, uh, and there's not a whole lot I could do. So I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, that's my big issue. 
you, you want to change culture. That's there's not that's not a rule change. You want to you want to create this equality um, so that and and I, I love the I often talk about we're passing the baton to the emerging world, and by passing the baton to the emerging world, we're sort of gutting our own middle. We um, are, and that's and that <laughs> there isn't another way to do it. That's hard. I want it fast. I want it to be faster, is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> or make I can't. You can't make it go away. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. But if we could make that happen faster, that would be my my magic wand waving. Although yeah. I don't know what faster looks like. It could be more pain for the middle. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, I think you know when you uh, Jonathan, we had uh, Mark Blythe on uh, a few shows back, um, and he really gets into like the economics of this because I think it, it's it's an incredibly complex problem because you know there's one thing with um, allowing capital to move, but making labor bounded by national borders, right? Because that's basically what we've done with certain kinds of deregulation, like the U.S. labor force is trapped in the US and business can sort of delocalize itself. Um, and so then that creates, like you said, you know, lifting some of the the developing world up, but then at the same time, exactly what are you doing with labor in those different places? And so it's a, no, it's a complex issue. Yeah, one we're not gonna solve today, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was my magic wand. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, over time, like I've come to see financial freedom as a practice, like, fitness or meditation practice right. with both, you know, mental things you got to work on and actual steps to take. How would you describe the process that you went through uh, to get to your true wealth? There's, um, there's some pitfalls in, in, in this. There, and I started with a pitfall. I started reading the, the what is it, four hour work week, right? Which I consider to be a big pitfall because it's streamlining essentially, right? It's streamlining your operation. And that's great if you're drop shipping stuff from a warehouse in the middle Midwest somewhere. But if you're doing customer service, you can't, you can't streamline, right? You, you are customer driven. So the tendency is to, to make things easier uh, so you have more time is to remove exceptions, remove the cust customer service essentially. Uh, and I did, I did a lot of that. I removed a lot of the roadblocks that were um, taking up a lot of time. Uh, and I realized that a lot of those road, roadblocks had value. A lot of those things were value adds. So there's just some things that are, that are inevitably gonna take up a lot of time. And rather than not doing them, I train other people on how to do them better, uh, if that makes sense. Um, because before I would have to do every, all those things. Is this, is this too vague? Is this too a vague uh, description? So for example, we do 400 special orders a year, uh, which means a customer pre-orders an item or orders an item. And we, I have to hand watch that item go through this distribution system and come out the other side and get shipped to us and then contact that customer, right? And we're like, we have a 99% success rate at, at getting the customer the thing they want. That sucks, 99% is not good enough, right? So do you stop doing it or do you keep trying to get that last 1%? Well, if you're, if you're all about four hours of work a week or aiming towards that, you might just stop doing those special orders entirely because it takes up so much time. But it would be better to come up with new technology or new processes to get the last 1%. Um, so that's kind of just one example of, of things where it seems like you should 
streamline to gain additional time, but in reality, you're losing customer service, therefore find better ways to do what you're doing now. Yeah, I, I find that's I find that's so interesting. You know, like I don't know um, in your communities how how things are looking right now, but like up here, um, it's like basically they they're trying to eliminate customer service entirely. Like you go to the supermarket now, and there's like the scan caches where everybody can go out, and then there's like the one cashier with a line of like forty people. And it seems like they're really trying to just like eliminate or, you know, the phone system where you like you call press one for this, press two for this. And like you can't actually get a human being on the phone anymore. And so it seems like one of the things is to just eliminate all of that customer service entirely. Yeah, we we don't have many legs to stand on, right? Because we're not the cheapest. Uh, we don't have everything in the universe in our store. So we have to customer service needs to be front and center. Uh, we have to be knowledgeable. We have to be able to handhold and get people to the product that they want. Uh, and we, we also are all about uh, events and experiential retail because uh, that's really all we have. We can't be turnkey uh, like Amazon because there's already an Amazon. They do it better. They'll always be bigger than us. Um, so, so that's the big thing is you can't, you know, it's, it's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You can't, you got to be careful on what you're, what you're pruning. Um. Yeah, well, especially like given your business model. And so like, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm just curious, like how is it being in that space right now? Because I think, you know, uh, one of the things like in real estate, we talk about what's happening with retail because obviously we're interested in retail rents, right? And like one of the things that gets mentioned all the time is, oh, well, retail's dead, right? Like, like your type of store is it the type of store that's supposed to be getting put out of business by the big forces that are going on. So what is your experience like of being in that space? Well, I have a, it's, it's kind of a pet peeve. My, my feel on it is the media only reports on publicly traded companies. They don't really care about small business. There's not really, there's, you can't put your finger on it. You can't wrap your arms around small business. So we're, we're pretty much ignored. And there's some businesses that are just always going to be okay, but we're just not small enough to where you can invest in. So no one really cares about us. Um, but that said, COVID, you know, almost crushed us like it crushed, almost crushed a lot of people. Um, but we're, we're counter cyclical. So when things are bad, people gravitate towards us, which is which is nice. Um, and we're we're in a our, my particular trade is in a growth a growth uh, spurt right now. It's our, it culturally people are very much into nerd culture and hobby games and stuff. So there is there is something I think you're I and maybe this is maybe doing this intentionally, maybe this is purely accidental. But I, I think that when you set out to to start Black Diamond Games. You set out to to build a different kind of game store. Uh, I remember, you know, looking at game stores where all of the employees nothing wrong with this, but all the employees were all tattooed and pierced and had purple hair and had poorly lit game stores and poorly lit places and everything was dingy and dirty and and games were stacked all over the place in complete disarray. And you were like, you know what, we can actually make this local experience better. And I think because of that stance at the outset in like the last, I don't know, how many, how many years has it been since you've been in business, but many of your game store, you know, compatriots in your local area have gone under. Many more have been born uh, and then they've gone under and they've been born again and gone under and born again and gone on, under. And you've been a stalwart, steady presence in your in your community for a long time because you've served the customer. And so there's a, there's a counter argument to the Amazon thing. People, you know, 
thrive on connection. That's you know that's what we want is connection. And so how do we how do we get that? You right, create. I almost, I almost need someone to sit next to me and bring this stuff up whenever I talk because, like I said, all the soft stuff that we're talking about are things that I that are they're 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 kind of byproducts of running a good business. I think. Uh, and they're not things that I can that I ever quantify or try to make more of. They're they're just a, gr- a wonderful byproduct, of, like like profit of just of doing a good job, right? Um, I, and I thought I could I quit my IT career so I could because I could I could run a better game store, and that was kind of the trap. As my joke is, it's the, it's a trap thinking you can do it better because of course you can do it better, right? And then you get in there and you have ideas and then you realize your ideas don't work and you start doing things like other people. Uh, but, you know, there are limits. You still want it clean and you still want it well. You remember, you remember the things that really bugged you, right? And for me, it was, I want to be in a place where I'm going to be here every day. This place needs to be nice because I like, I like nice places. Why would I want to live in a dump? Uh, so, I, and, I, and I kind of go beyond my trade and into retail in general. What are the current retail trends? What you know, what are re- what are good retail fixtures? Not just what game stores use, which they generally buy at IKEA. You know, the IKEA, the, the Meltorp tables and the Calyx shelves on every single game store. Uh, so you know, I buy fancy handmade wood fixtures from Oregon. You know, that match the entire store. That's what I need. That's what I want. That's how it should be. Um, yeah. So, and people respond to that. They like that we have uh, a space, like our gaming space was, recent, was built in 2016. And we built that space and it's built for, to purpose and to code. And it doesn't stink because it has the correct amount of air conditioners and airflow and bathrooms and sp- space between tables. Everything is correct and right, which is super uncommon with, with, what, I, with what we do <laughs> in this trade. You can set yourself apart by just setting yourself apart. Just do things right. And, and, you know, and I never think of competitors as those beneath me. They're always the ones up there, right? They're like, I'm competing against Amazon and sometimes Barnes and Noble and, and things like that. I'd never think of myself as competing against the small store across town. I just don't care what they're doing. I'm doing, doing the best that I can do with what I'm doing and, and aiming higher. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna beat on somebody, I'm gonna always beat on the bigger guy. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, tell us, tell us I, just before we wrap up. Tell us what, and I know that we, you and I have talked about this over the years, but what is the next project? You mentioned earlier that uh, you know setting this up so you can be free to do other things forces you to find other things to do. So, what is that next thing that you're gonna do? The, so the the Harvard study, Harvard uh, Business Review article talked about the Maui Beach House, right? So if you can't, so, so here's how it goes. If you're, um, your, your business is successful, you can expand, you can merge, you can go public, you can do all these different things uh, and they all have a big chance of failure, right? So if you don't want to expand and you don't want to fail, one of the examples they give is the Maui Beach House, which is basically as the owner, you focus on a project. And a project is big enough to distract you from breaking your business. <laughs> with the next big thing, right? So I'm building my Maui beach house, which is essentially, this is my plan to go to Mexico for six months out of the year. I have a five-year plan to visit all these Pueblos Magicos, these these towns in Mexico. And I'm gonna have a a 30 foot travel trailer and a 
and a big truck and we're gonna we're gonna take it down there and spend six months out of the year i'm gonna be able to work from my from my trailer so i'm still connected to the store uh and then six months come back and 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 catch up on things uh so that's my that's my next plan and i have one after that but this, that's the next one very exciting gary thanks for joining us man this has been fun it was a good fun yes Thanks for listening. I hope you got something out of our conversation with Gary today. As you go back into the world, maybe you can reconsider the importance of having a solid business plan or reconsider the importance of your team relative to your customers. I know that I will be, as I always do after talking to Gary, rethinking my ideas of more versus enough. Thanks again for listening. Remember to subscribe and tune in to the next episode.